Welcome to Anthony Plog on Music. I'm Tony Plog, and my guest today is Mark Gould. Mark is one of the most interesting musicians in the world today. He can be controversial, thought-provoking, hilarious, you name it. But he is not boring, that's for sure. And that is why this interview is so much fun to do. In part one, Mark shares some of his ideas about teaching, including how he would teach me if I came to him as a young student. He also talks about the sound and influence of Adolf Herseth, and we end the first part of our conversation with a few stories about his time with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. So, Mark Gould, welcome to the podcast. It's a great pleasure, Mr. Plogue. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, you know, I've read your book, um, aptly titled Gould on Music, and I think it's really, really terrific. And what I would suggest for teachers and students, it's a really easy-to-read book, but there's a lot of material in there, and it goes by really quickly. I would suggest reading the book once, just going straight through, and then picking a section, and then really rereading it, rereading it, and really thinking about it. Because I think a lot of thing, things go by very quickly that you may not, uh, that you could just sort of go over and, and not really get it. And so I think it's a great book, and I think uh, I think it could help a lot of people. Well, well, thank you, Tony. Yeah, I think it's terrific. So I want to start in, in something that's not particularly musical, but I just want to ask you this question. You, when you went to school, you majored in English Lit and Philosophy, and you got your degree in Sociology? Yeah, I mean, what happened was in the middle of my time at Boston University, I left school to go on the road with the band. And we came to New York to Bagatelle, and we made a record. We were gigging around and stuff. And then I, I went back to school, and I had to figure out the fastest way to graduate at that point. Sociology. Needed, I needed the fewest credits, so I became a sociology major. So there's no, like when you also you did some English lit though, right? English yeah, literature. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I used to read books and read. For, <laughs> you, you know, don't I mean, read I, books. You I just was, write I them. I used to read and write, so I was edu I was educated in that way. So did you have favorite authors back then? Um, I'll tell you, most of the reading that I did came after I left school in my early twenties. I mean, I read a lot of fiction. I read a lot of Nabokov. I read a lot of uh, Saul Bellow, Philip Roth novels. I read a lot of fiction back then. That was the time when I did most of my reading of that. You know, now I more or less I read either uh, junk, like a thriller, or nonfiction. Such I mean, as? Well, I've been digging into uh, reading about the history of classical music in America. You know Joe. Oh Hogan. yeah, right. Yeah, I, I don't know him personally, but he has a blog, I think, and he writes a yes. lot of columns and stuff. And, and he's a very good writer, and and he wrote a book on Toscanini, the Toscanini thing. And also, I'm reading that, and I'm reading Wagner on conductors. I'm reading because I'm starting to write about conducting now. Right. It, it just sort of um, write about my experience with conductors. So it's very interesting for me to read about how this evolved. That's a fascinating uh, story because what Wagner used to complain about conductors, he would complain because they came out of conducting uh, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, Haydn, where all you really need, you could really have a click track almost, and it would be what those musicians needed at that time. They were not as good as we are. They needed, okay, someone to sort of make sure that everything is together and neatly done. And now when you get into romantic music, that doesn't really work. 
it's much more a vocal gesture. It's like uh, the gestures become different. So Wagner complained about conductors who were not able to do that, who were not able to sing the lines, you know. So it becomes different. Now we jump ahead to 2021, where the orchestras are so good, you could just like, get them started and it's sort of it's okay it goes it would go like a Tchaikovsky symphony with a, a major symphony orchestra you could have anybody sort of up there doing whatever and they would decide okay if they decided they were going to play it they would play it and it would be not not very good or but it'd be okay it'd be representation and then I started to check out older recordings of, like, Stravinsky first conducting Rite of Spring. Did you ever hear that? Is that with the Columbia Orchestra? No, it's, like, done in 1926 with some Paris group. Really? Wow. Yes. Oh, I don't know where these they got these people. They couldn't play it at all. Uh-huh. It's sort of hilarious. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying it was, like, a little off. No, it was, like, nope. You know, like, oh, for any of the mixed meter stuff was completely, you could hear half the, the, the strings faking completely. You know, you hear this wash of sound. It was very, very funny. And the same thing when Montu conducted it. And he did it in another Paris orchestra, I think a year earlier. Or, that was the same. They couldn't play it either. Hmm. Okay. It, it was interesting, you know, like whoa. Oh, okay. Because Stravinsky was, I've heard, was not a very good conductor at all. In well, fact, it had nothing to do with him. They just couldn't. They couldn't, couldn't do, do it. it. Yeah. They didn't. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't count. They couldn't count that at that point. You know, when you were talking about Wagner, a little in a little while, we'll, we'll talk about historical interpretations and stuff, um, which I know is one of your sort of pet peeves. But I heard the Freiburg Baroque Orchestra play the Flying Hollander, Fliegende Hollander right. uh, Overture. On authentic instruments, right. Friedman Niemeyer was playing, you know, first trumpet on, on, and it was, and it was, it was remarkable because I heard so much counterpoint. It was really like a different composer. It, it was, uh, it, it really blew me away because normally I think of Wagner as having these really rich, you know, luscious song sounds, and you were talking about the singing quality, and right. this was counterpoint. And I had, it was like I had no idea that Wagner wrote so much counterpoint. So it was, it was really So you heard lines that you were not aware of? Yes, yeah, exactly. Well, how could that be? I, I, I'm not quite sure I understand that. Me neither, actually. Uh, but I don't know, maybe because of the balance of instruments, perhaps? Well, it could be the balance. I mean, could the, the, the older brass instruments could not play as loudly? Yeah, for sure. Although there's not a lot of brass in, in the Right, in that, in that in there's that like yeah. little there's parts of it. Yeah. Anyway, well, one of the, the main parts of your book that I want to talk about a lot is teaching. And um, I, was, I was really impressed by everything you had to write, and I was really surprised because I've always had the impression that you were like a really tough-as-nails teacher, and just because of my, maybe my personal experiences seeing you in action, but also, you know, hearing from students about certain things that, that you'd, you'd say or do, that you were, like, really, really tough. And, and it really sounded to me like you were really, um, that you are really involved with your students and, and really concerned uh, with your students. And one of the things that you quote in your book or mention is the Hippocratic Oath of, uh, of do no harm. And first do no harm. Yeah, first do no harm. And, and um, you said that you feel like you're a better teacher now than when you started. Why oh, is much that? better. 
Yeah. How? Why and how? Well, I'm, I'm much more um, number. Well, I guess number one. Now that I'm an old man, or you know, even when I got to be, let's say, 55, or even after I had left the orchestra, I was 54, 55 years old. At that point, I'm. I I understood that. Well, wait a second. This student is not here to. I don't need to compete with that student on any level. It's not a competition. All they want is information from me. So then I was able to evaluate how they learned. What kind of a learner are they? What what sort of thing makes an impression on this person? You know, do they uh, are they a musical person? Are they very? Uh, do they get fall in a hole of just practicing drills and scales and? Do they like to do that? How do they, how do they enter the material? So, I mean, I would just like, I began to start to teach where they were from where they were. So I was very good at picking that up. Um, and then I could say things that were not really harsh because, you know, when it comes from me, there's like, um, there's always humor involved in it. I don't take myself that seriously. You know, I mean, I realize, you know, I'm saying I'm acting like a complete. You know, saying something, but I would say something to someone that's memorable. Like in, you know, we refer to, you know, when you did the Juilliard class, mm -hmm. I said something like, you know, what are you talking about a f sausage? You know, what, <laughs> what, what the, right? I mean, I would say yeah. that and you remembered it and everybody there remembered it. It's like, oh, wait yeah, a that's second. True. Yeah, so that it's was memorable. memorable. And yeah. that's therefore as a teaching moment, it's very, very good. Mm -hmm. I think it's like really, really good teaching moments. Like, oh, good. Something actually happened. Mm -hmm. There mm -hmm. was uh, a dialogue. I, and everybody knew that I had great respect for you. It wasn't like, you know, I'm saying anything like Tony Plogue doesn't know what he's talking about. And you didn't feel that way at all, I'm sure. Well, I, maybe you did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually felt we had, I remember we had a, a long discussion about that. It was like about a 10 minute discussion. And I really felt like, uh, I did a, a poor job because um, what the conversation I think really was about, and we'll, we can get into this later, was how literal do you have to be in the interpretation of music, I think. Because I was right. talking about, you know, the, the student was playing uh, pianissimo in, instead of piano and, and that sort of thing. And we'll get into that. So, so, so I think that's a really interesting discussion to have because you have a lot of um, strong feelings about that. And so... I have strong feelings about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. More than ever, I would really? say. Really? Okay, okay. More than ever. But we can get into that. It would be good to, ex if anybody's going to listen to this, to explain the whole situation in that class, which I think was very interesting because in my book, I mentioned the student, uh, Fede Montes played your uh, postcards, right. right? And you had criticisms about his interpretation, which he sort of more or less got from me. And I have a discussion of that in the book. So right. Except, you know, in, in reading that in the book, um, that I actually, um, think that that it was my fault because no. oh. well let me wait 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 uh what i've learned over time is that i i need to be a little bit more specific in what i write so if i had written exactly the same music but had written legero at the beginning i think you might have had a different approach or the student might have had a different approach which was what i was thinking another piece i wrote for example four sketches it has fortes in the first movement but my intention when i wrote it was that it was going to be a light you know forte but I didn't notate that. I, I just, it's almost like politics. In politics, you assume that everybody 
feels the way you feel. And right. that's obviously not the case. So I have a question for you. So in postcards, it's written as a forte, I think, some mm-hmm. dynamic. If you had just written no dynamic and written Legero, that would have been interesting. I mean, for me, it's like, oh, okay, he wants that feel. Okay, so that can yeah, be... Yeah, but I think that, that would be sort of boring. But I think if you'd have Legero and Forte, then you'd see that there'd be a contrast, but it wouldn't be as big of a contrast. Right. Well, well we can get in discussion yeah, we'll get of, into the ways, of Trumpet yeah. alone. Because, I mean, I could, we, we could go back and forth on that, which I think would be very interesting for people who play these these pieces. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, I don't want to talk about <laughs> myself on this interview. Well, but it's I, not yourself. It's just about like a solo trumpet piece. Yeah, yeah, If exactly. we may for a minute. Like there's that Chelsea, the four pieces. Yeah, right? and you, you talk about that, right. Right, the Chelsea. It's like, well, okay. I've heard it played and recorded by, uh, uh, I guess, did Reinhold record it? He I think he have. did, yeah. Right, and, you know, it's like it's Reinhold, great, great trumpet player, you know. Great, great, one of the great trumpet players. Um, the interpretation for me is like very square, very much, you know, involved in the text, which is like it's sort of, uh, I, I don't, I don't get that at all. That doesn't make any sense to me because you lose all the theatricality of that and you're just playing these notes or phrases and it doesn't quite have, it doesn't land with the same impact. Doesn't you're not really telling a story because you're playing alone, so it sort of has to be yours. Now, a composer like yourself, you would say something different, you know, like how dare they play? Well, you'd go out of your mind. You start throwing garbage on the stage, you know. Well, not I'm you. not sure I'd do that. <laughs> I'm not sure that that doesn't sound like you, but yeah. But it, you know, if someone did that and it actually made it work. It's possible to make it work that way in a way that's like, oh, I never thought about it that way. I'm not saying I wouldn't suggest that people do it, especially I, but, not when you're around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I had an experience in Italy one time. I, I was teaching in Rome, and there was a really good player who was playing a solo piece by Frank Campo called Times. Do you know that right, piece? Right, right, okay. right. Tom Stevens recorded it, and he was doing it in a very um, romantic way, a very Italian way. And I said, um, you know, I don't, Frank's style is really not like that. It should be more, I think it should be more straight ahead. And he said, well, I like it this way. And I said, okay, why? And he said, well, I just do. And I said, okay, tell you what, Frank speaks Italian. He studied in Italy with Petrassi. Um, at six o'clock tonight, that's nine o'clock in the morning, let's call him. So we called Frank from, from Italy and the student asked him in Italian about phrasing it that way. Can I phrase it that way? And Frank said, of course you can. It's just not my music when you do that. Now, that's sort of on the other side. And and to me, what this discussion means is um, I don't think there's any definite answer. I, I, I think you do the best you can and, and you try and be as informed as you can. And then you also, it's a, I guess it's, a, what would you say, a combination between heart and mind. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And it depends on who's doing it. Mm-hmm. So if he played it in a romantic style that actually worked, but what you're saying, when you heard it, you go like, well, this is not working. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't make any sense. Now, if, if someone was able to play something in a way that, well, you know, in a certain way that made sense. You know, I'm very liberal with that. Yeah. I'm not encouraged. If someone plays something 
and they played something and it was like they chose a style or did something and then it was just bullshit. Well, then I would say it sounds like bullshit to me. Yeah. It's like yeah, yeah. not honest. You're not, it's like no approach. You just sort of default. You did something. It could be. I mean, if I heard that now, then I'd think it was fine too. You know, so I mean, taste change. So you called Frank Kemp. That's hilarious. I mean, it's funny. I mean, really. Why is that hilarious? Okay. Let's call Stravinsky. Oh, wait a second. He's passed. Does he pass? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. But I have the next best thing. I know Stravinsky's nephew. He lives in Brooklyn. Let's call him. He knows all about his... Marvin all Stravinsky. About his, that's yeah. right, yeah. Oh, I thought it was Joe, but anyway. Um, listen, I, I want to clear up a rumor that I've heard about you. Um, and I actually quoted it to Mark David... Um, who you've never met, but he would love to meet you sometime. Do you know Mark? Do you know who he is? Mm -hmm. He's great. He's really terrific. But the, the rumor I heard was that if occasionally you have a student who comes in who's unprepared or maybe chronically unprepared, that you reach into your desk drawer, take out a piece of paper, and hand them an application for McDonald's? No, I never did that. That's completely really? untrue. It's not my style at all. That's like very... That's too... I mean, let's say you have a student who keeps coming in unprepared. Now, I taught at Juilliard and Manhattan School of Music. I really didn't see very much of that. Now, in other places, I could see that could be a, a problem in your studio. You got to look, okay, guys, you got to get in there. And if you want to get better, you got to practice the trumpet. If someone would come in unprepared all the time, I said, well, how come you're... You sound like you don't want to do this. You want to do something else? You want to, like, bring in some songs you wrote on the guitar? Fine. Let's do that. Yeah. I'll do that. That's that's okay. Then mm -hmm. we'll get back to the trumpet. I mean, if that's where you are, that's where you are. Now, I, that's a luxury at Juilliard. I mean, and now there are people who, like, militantly say, well, if you're in the studio, you must pass level one, two, then you go on to three, three and four. Now you are now trained fully and you're out in the world and we have another, you know, 100,000 mediocre whatever, you know, I mean, it, right. could, be, it could be that too. So I've, I've actually seen that. I think there's more of that in Europe, or at least there was more of that in Europe or the German speaking countries where it's, there are a number of teachers where it's my way or the highway. Yeah. And uh, the first year they, they play this, they do these warm ups. The second year they do this doesn't matter who the student is. And, and one thing you talk about in your book, and you're very strong on this, is that you tailor your teaching to each individual student. Not only their physical capabilities and musical capabilities, but also sort of the emotional state that they bring. Yeah, who, to playing who they the are. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know players who, like at a young age, they're, they're really not disciplined and formed in a way. You know, it's like sort of not, they wouldn't survive that. But actually, they're worthy performers. You know, they could turn into something like, wow, that's really great. Right. You know, that, that, so it's not for everybody. But see, at Julia, there was like teaching, I mean, the last number of years, it was like essentially Ray Mace and myself. And that's a very good balance because, you know, Ray is Ray, you know. Yeah, right. Sick. Ray is Ray, very um, methodical. Talks about technique in a way that is very musical. Understands he's like a great, great musician, but very different from me. But we worked very well together, actually taught many of the same students. 
you know, they go from one to another, and it was actually very smooth in that way. So Yeah, right. I think that's very good for the student. I think that's great for the student. Yeah, yeah. that's great for the student. So it's not like one way. That's ridiculous. Look at the example of Thomas Gansch, you know, his brother's Hans Gansch. Right. There was a time when they tried to, you know, put him into that, you know, that kind of very regimented, oh, you're Hans Gansch's brother, you'll, duck, duck, you know. And that wasn't Thomas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it shouldn't not, seem like it. I've never no, met him, but it shouldn't seem no, like it. No, it's not, it's not him. It's, but it's partly him. I mean, there's like a large part of him, but it's like a much more... He's a jazz musician, essentially, who plays the trumpet, plays anything, but... Yeah. You, so it's a different, whole different thing. So here's a question related to how you relate to each, each individual student. So I, I have to ask this. Um, you know me a little bit as a person. We've, we've, we see each other through the years, not that often, but you sort of know what I'm like, right? Um, when I was about 18 or 19 years old, before I studied with Tom Stevens, I was studying with Irving Bush, and Irving was talking about, you know, maybe you should think about auditioning for Juilliard, because I had gone to a junior college my first two years, and I remember thinking very clearly I could never do that because the people who go to Juilliard are geniuses. On the West Coast, that, that was our the way we felt about Juilliard and the East Coast, and all my heroes were, outside of my teachers, were guys like Vacchiano and, you know, all those people. Um, suppose, like, I had auditioned for Juilliard, and it was a little bit later, and you were my teacher, and I came into the first lesson or two. How would you react to me how would you would you beat me over the head or would you be nice or oh very nice Mm -hmm. i mean at that age i mean you're and you just arrive in new york yeah and probably scared of new york yeah no just take it easy you know calm down Eh, that's all right (laughs) okay but look at and and i know the way because i mean you've written method books you have what four or five of them out don't you uh seven seven books okay excuse me Uh, that's okay with all due respect. No test on Friday. And, and I've, you know, I've read through your books, your, you know, many of your, and it's like, oh, okay. Well, this guy obviously is a very methodical practicer. He, you address all the issues of playing over breaks and being flexible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's all in there. But that's how you practice the trumpet. And you could, you'll learn a symphony. Yes, I'm Anthony Pelog. I, I can, which would you like? The first, second, or third pause? You know, that's you. You know, you're a nerd, man. Okay. You're a hopeless nerd. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I, I would, Guilty I would see that about you. I'd be entertained by that, but I'd let you have it. It's like, okay, let's, I, I would push that. Yeah. I would push that part of you. Oh, okay, great. More material, give you more stuff, you know. Yeah, actually, play when, this, I, when this, I studied with Tom, he was really tough on me. He gave me tons of stuff to do. Yeah, too. and so, that was great for you. It was. Yeah, it really was. And and of course, you never would have made it in New York because they're all geniuses, Tony. That's right. I know. I wouldn't have had a chance. <laughs> no chance. Well, one of the things you talk about in your book, which when I was a student, nobody did, and I think more and more people are doing it now, is uh, singing. And you sort of take it one step further and you say sing and also conduct as well and listen to recordings and have your favorite players and and all of that. Do you think, in in my case, when I was growing up, I had a couple of favorite players on recordings, Maurice Andre and Bud Hirschhoff. Those were the default uh, heroes for all of us. Do you think there's a problem of a student um, doing 
too much listening to one player and just trying to be that player? Um, no, I don't think so, especially in the beginning. You know, if you have your heroes, that's great. I mean, if you could copy Maurice Andre or Bud Herseth, how they would play something now. Let's say you heard Bud Herseth play Siegfried's Rhine Journey. Bum, bee, bum, bum. I mean, it's not like he's going to break the trumpet. I, I listen it, to that constantly. The it, recording it with was, Reiner. It is the greatest thing I've ever heard. That, there's no other version, because I've played that, of course, and I've recorded that, but it's like, oh, my God, listen to that. It just grabs you right out of your seat. It's so exciting. Yeah. So to capture that kind of excitement, but I could never play like that. I mean, I couldn't do that. So it's like, yeah, Bud Hurst, you're no longer my hero, although I love you, but um, we're going to have to go a different route. But I factored that in. Right. right. Oh, for sure. You know, I mean, I'm going to go for some of that. It's like, okay, we're going to articulate so the bell has like little dents in it at the end of that passage, you know. This Fantastic, friend of mine, right? Yeah, great. A friend of mine told me that he spoke to Herseth, and this was one of your students, actually, and Herseth said, I think the way you form your sound or your concept is, you know, you take a little bit from this player, a little bit from this player, a little bit from that player, and then you mix them all together, and it sort of comes out as as your sound in, in a way. And And your idea about sound is that it transmits information. And I guess you could say that if you if you talk about Siegfried and and Herseth as an example. Oh yeah, tremendous amount of information in that. And so when you played, I mean, what kind of information would you try to transfer? <laughs> I mean, but we can't really know that, you know, when we're playing. You have to just play and play what you hear. We can't know that. I mean, I I can't say that. But I would say um, Herseth. I remember. At an ITG conference, it's one I actually played at in the year 2000, and Herseth was there. And I'm sitting next to Alan Dean. So we're sitting in the audience, and he it's like the head ship captain addressing the whole Navy. <laughs> you know okay. what I mean? Yeah, the yeah. place uh-huh. is full. There's like 1,200 people in an auditorium. <sighs> and here's Adolf Herseth. You know, ah, the place goes bananas, right? Mm-hmm. So he starts talking about the Haydn concerto. Well, I hear these guys, you know, they come in to play bom, bom, bom. What's that? What are their teachers doing? Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and then he would play a little bit, right? And he was an old man at this time. And the thing that was interesting, it was like, it, it was raw, but it, you could hear that was the core of that sound. It was like, oh, it was not... It was no longer like beautiful lemon, but it was like it had that raw power in the middle. It was like, oh, okay, yes, sir. Yeah. You know, that's what was propelling it. That was the black hole of fire of radiation that was that was communicating all that sound. And that, that was beautiful, uh, beautiful sound, that ringing sound. Yeah, he was something. Yeah. Yeah, well, he was something. Yeah. I, years ago, um, actually when I was in Sweden, a trumpet player, Otto Sauter, put together a session, well actually it was a week-long recording of music for six trumpets, and he got Herseth to, to do it. And and so on one of the pieces, I think Bud was playing, it was a Lopresti, I forget the name, Sweet yeah, yeah. Trumpets or something like that, and Bud was playing fourth, I think, and I was playing fifth. 
and we had something in unison, and so I was really trying to put out sound, and I thought, wow, I'm actually playing louder than Herseth. And then I heard the playback, and all I could hear was her <laughs> You know, because his sound was just so, had so much core, like what, what you said. You know? Yeah, it goes straight out. You're not aware of how loud it is. The same thing sitting next to Mel Broyles. Yeah, and we'll talk about him, too. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, it was the same thing. I remember said, whoa, it doesn't sound that loud. And then you go out in the house and say, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. And, and a real... Oh, just a, a real strength. I mean, I had a lesson once with Herseth, and, and it took me two years to realize what the lesson was, which was, I'm never going to be able to do that. I'm never, <laughs> never going to be able to play in an orchestra. I'm not going to have that physical strength, and I'm not going to have that mental strength. And that really changed my career of what I decided to do. And it sounds like a negative thing, but actually it was just a realization. You know, that That's great, Tony. One lesson, he destroyed you, yeah. <laughs> destroyed your orchestral <laughs> my, dreams yeah, my and desires. That's, That's great, right. man. That's Wonderful right. guy, sweetheart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was actually good for me. Right. So um, so one thing you suggest suggested, and I tried it, um, and I don't understand how it supposedly works, is you said for sound, tap offbeats to a metronome, and that can determine if you have a good sound. I yeah, don't it's a weird that. thing Why? if you've ever tried it with someone, you know, put a metronome on and see how accurately they, they tap off beats. Yeah, I, did, I mean, I'm not playing anymore, but I did that. But how would that determine, to me, I that would know. just determine if you have a I good rhythm. I don't know. That's what I mean. I don't know. Huh, okay. I don't understand it. I, it it's, it's, oh. but that was Brodus Earl of the, uh, of the Yale Quartet. Hmm. Okay. And he, he told me that, and I was like, fat, always fascinated. I've tried it out a few times. But let's get back to singing. Okay, yes, please. So if I sang to you like a Washington Post March, I could sing it to you at any tempo and make it be believable. So like... That sking, boom. So you feel the groove. I'm not saying it's right, but oh, okay, we're going to try to play it like that. So, right, so I'm aware, or Charlie to yeah. or I could sing it very straight, rhythmically exactly right. I could do it that way, or another way where I'm conducting it. As I'm singing a French aria. So you could get into all kinds of things at many different tempi. I found that that was very, very useful and helpful to me. Playing everything. Yeah, absolutely. You're moving a body part. It's like you're dancing. Your body's into it. So it's a full body thing. And conducting while you're singing. What do you think about this idea? Um, this is approaching it from a different angle in terms of music, uh, just musicianship or musicality. But some of the times what I tell people is if you take something like the Charlet, which is really musical, just play the first section, the first, I think it's the first four or five lines, play it with no rubato, no vibrato. Right. And still try and make it musical. And if you can at least get halfway to making it musical, then when you start to add rubato and vibrato, whatever you want to do, then it's so much easier. And it also gives you sort of a framework to work with. Does that make sense to you or not? Yeah, that makes sense to me. Or is it too, uh, too academic? No, no, that makes sense to me. I mean, it's, um, yes. Uh, uh, often I would say to someone like cut all the vibrato out and play cause they're hiding in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're, they hide in the, the vibrato's covering up some sins. Right. 
So, yeah, okay, straight tone, no vibrato, and play it metron. So the, it's the metronome is exact. And yes, I think that's a very good thing to do. I would have no problem playing that way. None. I could do that. So, oh, I could, I could hear it that way. Do you think that's hard for students? I think all the ways are hard for students. But they, it, it's like as we get further and further away from any kind of romantic music, that becomes very exotic. It's like, you know, like ancient undiscovered texts to play. So usually you're in 4-4, four, four, right? One, and, you know, like you land on the F and it's one, but it isn't, you know. Yeah, right, exactly. Which is some sort of attention. So have someone to think of if they conduct it, even if you sang it very straight, in three, four, where the strong beats are. Right. And would you say then the six, eight at the end? To me, it seems like the six, eight at the end, we're really getting into the weeds here, that it would go to the e, e flat? Yes. Exactly right. Which to me makes the end a little bit more calm yes. as compared to the, the beginning. It's really six, thinking yeah. six, feeling yeah. six. Yeah. Be, and it, it has a whole different feel. But it, but it's like, you know, for me, because, you know, since I didn't go to music school, I was at the school of the opera. So hearing people sing lines, and some people really could sing them great, and people play lines in the orchestra. It's like, oh, I get this. I, oh, I get it. And I mean, if you listen to Frank Sinatra sing or Ella Fitzgerald or any good pop singer, it's the same thing. They are communicating information about how they phrase something, where it's elongated with a word or how that works. Right. And they have the advantage of words, too. They have the advantage have. of words. Yeah. But now, like in an orchestra, I mean, there's not many times where the trumpet can do anything like that. You have to sort of um, play <laughs> martial music very accurately and... In a good, well, the rhythm has to be good, but the time feel has to be good. Well, I would like, actually, I was going to ask this later, but, but I'll ask it now. I would like you to sing something, just to give an idea. You talked about the long trumpet solo in Don Pasquale. Right. And that you, in one performance and then subsequent performances, like did an improvisation. You just, you, I don't think you even told the conductor you were going to do it. And you just sort of did it. And you said it was sort of almost like jazz-oriented, but you didn't go over the edge. Um, exactly how did you do that? Where in the solo did you do that? Well, right at the end. And then... And I played a little thing. Uh-huh. And then I did a little grace note at the end. Uh-huh. And it was close to being like, you know, get the f- out of here. You know, what are you doing? <laughs> and did the, what did the conductor do? He dug, he dug it. Nicholas did Rashino. he look surprised? Oh, uh, yeah, he looked surprised. Uh-huh. And but you said the tenor didn't like it because you got applause. I got applause a couple of times after. He said, no, 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 no. You're applauding for the freaking introduction. Yeah. This is about me. This yeah. Alfredo Krauss, <laughs> who is one of the great... Uh, light tenors who sang uh-huh. that aria as well as anybody I ever heard. And he said, uh, excuse me, we start right after trumpet solo, no applause. 
you know. <laughs> did he talk he, to you about that? No, no, no. He, he, the conductor, he just did it. He said, yeah, hello. Uh-huh. Well, one of the things you've been doing recently, um, also in terms of teaching, or that you did recently, was you had this repertoire class uh, at Juilliard. And right. um, explain your thought about errors of omission versus errors of commission. Well, especially in that class, I tried to emphasize that, I mean, if you were completely unprepared, you know, you didn't know your part, that's an error of omission. If you sit there and play your part and you don't listen to anybody else, very poor ensemble and blending and trying to play with the group, that's an error of omission. Error of commission is try, is going for something and not making it. That's fine. Missing a note, that's fine. You tried something and it didn't work, that's fine. And I wanted to enable people in that class to feel like, yeah, go ahead, go for it and make a mistake. That's good. You're not going to be able to do it any other place. Someone will be, you know, get uptight about it and, you know, no, you know, you're supposed to hit all the right notes. But no, I don't think so. You should be, at a certain point, you sort of have to really go for stuff, you know? I mean, yeah. you go to a concert, I want to hear someone go for something. I mean, it's, you know, if you're playing and you go for something and you completely the bed, that's no fun. Yeah, but I think that's probably happened to everybody. Not me, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah, I knew that. I knew that. But for me, a couple times for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, something goes wrong. All right, something goes wrong. Yeah. So what? You said there was one time with Leinsdorf where you came in early oh. on in your career. You came in wrong, and he, oh. boy, he gave you the evil eye. No, it was more than that. He was foaming at the mouth. Really? <laughs> to the point where I ran out of the pit. I hid. Really? You know, like a scared house cat, you know? Mm-hmm. I hid under the bed, you know, until, and then we came back. It was right at the end of the first act. We came back in, in after intermission, after, the, you know, there was, there was a pause. We came back and his wife, Vera, was calming Eric down, you know. You're kidding. No, no, wow. no. She come and he said, you know, oh, I'm, you know, blah, blah, you know, he's tried to not froth at the mouth. And then we started the second act. I don't know, it took about, I don't know, 45 seconds. He was back to frothing at somebody. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, that's tough. Did you have that happen much when you were in the Met? I mean, I'm going to ask a lot of questions later about the Met, but did you, did you ever have to deal with conductors really getting on your case? Um, no, I mean, no, not really. Um, What's the name of the guy? The English conductor. He conducts a lot of Janicek. What's his name? Famous oh, guy. McCarris? Charles McCarris. McCarris, right? Yeah. So I came in to do some Janicek opera. I can't remember what it was. And I was coming in to read the rehearsal. And I turned the page. And there's some very awkward... Oh, God. You know what I mean? I should have taken a peek at this little baby. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah. And I can, in the rehearsal, I completely this thing up, you know, and he's looking back, you know, he's scowling, but I had already, you know, I'd been there a long time. Yeah. And, and he came over to me and he said, well, what's the problem? What, you know, he starts doing that thing. I see, you know, uh, you know, I'm doing the best I can, but I predict that tomorrow will be a little better. You know, I mean, I was able to say that at that point, that sort of stuff, what is he going to say? Well, you're going to fulminate at me? I mean, you know, I don't, you know, please. But 
um, the old Nazis, you know, like Karl Berm and th oh, that yeah. sort of that I came in. He conducted something at the men and scowling at people and all those guys. They sort of went away. And then I got better at the job and then the conductors liked me. Yeah. Because I played with good time. You know, like they when they needed me to push the music ahead, I knew to do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's what they're concerned about. And be with the stage. I know how to do that. Yeah. I could play with good ensemble. I could, I knew when I had to lead and when to go the flow. So, oh, oh I, I like that guy. He's pretty good. Yeah. Plays with a good feel, you know, to the music. And then it became very easy, actually, to, to do that. So I had no problems with conductors. I mean, honestly, at, when I first got there, it's like, oh, God. You know, it was like, you know, treading water, trying to figure out what was going on. What a nut show that was. Oh, my goodness. Because it was all so new. Well, it was new. And then like 20% of the band were hardcore alcoholics. You remember <laughs> okay. those days when people drank, you know, and they didn't have, you know, beta blockers. They drank. And they would tend to overdo it. <laughs> before performances. <laughs> well, there were, oh, yeah, there were guys who were before performances, after performances, before rehearsals, you know. Wow. Okay. There was drinking going on. And it was like mostly men, just yeah. a few women. So it was a different, different thing. The orchestra didn't play as well as they do now. You know, yeah. now it's like it runs like a, you know, like a, a, a machine all the way, all the violins all the way back. It's all very good and they will play correctly. You know, back in the day, oh my goodness. Well, there was one time I'll tell a, a, a story with Leonard Slatkin. Uh huh. You know, Leonard, you know, he looks like a pharmacist. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> he does, yeah. Or a dentist, yeah. you know. Yeah, he, right, yeah. He, yeah, know, he it, does, it, yeah. I could just see him with a white coat. Yeah, you could see him, you know. And he was conducting a gala performance. It was a TV show, right? And it was with the Met Orchestra. And he had to conduct a lot of arias. But that was not his thing. He did not, he doesn't know the repertoire, you know, he didn't. And then he stopped, you know, because he didn't really know how this one thing went, you know. He never really looked at it, you know. And he was conducting at the Philharmonic that week, you know. So he said, oh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I really apologize, you know. I have a very, I'm conducting a very difficult program at the Philharmonic this week. And, you know, I, you know, I didn't, you know, I got the music laid. He's, you know, he's making, you know, he's making excuses. And he's saying this to the Met Orchestra who, you know, rode, rose the slave galley, you know, for, hour after hour right during the opera so i raised my hand <laughs> i said excuse me maestro i have a question one question how difficult is the program you're doing this week with the new york philharmonic and the whole crowd goes Whoa! and i nailed him you know he says oh, okay all right you guys all right all right you. <laughs> okay that's good but he sort of got it right well oh yeah and then he laughed you know i mean it was funny in part two of our conversation, Mark and I talk about a variety of subjects having to do with interpretation and approach to music. When I ask him a few questions, he actually offers to give me therapy sessions to reform my views. I also ask Mark to explain some of the inner workings of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. 